we can sort of dehumanize people by putting them under categories uh, that, that we label them, right? We talk about the homeless, the poor, the refugees, the trafficking. We put the in front of these labels, and we forget that there's real human beings that are involved in this. You're listening to CX Confessions, brought to you by Koros. In each episode, we'll share the customer experience stories and insights you need. Straight from the sharpest minds in CX to better connect with your customers and create customers for life. Let's start the show. Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of CX Confessions, your podcast. For all things customer experience and engagement, my name is Spike Jones. I have the privilege of being the general manager of strategic services here at a place called Koros. And as always, I am joined by my amazing co-host, the CMO of Koros, the illustrious Catherine Calvert. How are you doing, Catherine? I am great, Spike. It's so good to be back, as always, for another great conversation with you and a very special guest. A very special guest indeed, and I am super excited about our guest today. Not only are him and his crew doing amazing things out in the world, but he's also a hell of a nice guy, and I get to call him my friend, which is pretty cool too. He is the CEO and co-founder of Love 146, an international human rights organization working to end child trafficking and exploitation. Prior to Love 146, he worked with Mercy Ships International, directing training schools at an international operations center. He has lectured and taught in over 20 countries on the issues of social justice, compassion, and human rights, and has been featured in the Huffington Post, the CNN Freedom Project, Forbes, NPR, the list goes on and on and on. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited for you to meet our guest today, Mr. Rob Morris. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So you're a little bit of a horse of a different color when it comes to our guests. Usually we have folks firmly planted in that business world, but we wanted you to come on because there are so many lessons that I know you can teach them through you and your organization and the journey that you've been on. So why don't we start there? Love 146. I know you get the question all the time. What, what is that? What is that? And how did y'all get that name? So a little, a little background would be awesome. Sure. So Love 146, we are an international human rights organization working to end the trafficking and exploitation of children. We're doing that through two key programs. One is a prevention program, and then the other is survivor care, where we take care of children who have been exploited and trafficked. We started, actually this year will be our 20th anniversary. We started about 20 years ago, and it was after an encounter with the issue. Myself and a couple of friends, we were doing different things at the time. I was actually a drummer in a band. Another friend of mine was a singer in a band. We had an artist, a photographer. We were friends, and we care about children, and we started hearing about this thing called child trafficking. And back in 2002, not a lot of people were were hearing about that. In fact, it was new terminology. Human trafficking as a term to describe this kind of crime against human beings was relatively new terminology. So not a lot of people knew what it was. And, and we had heard about it. And I just thought, this is insane that this kind of thing is happening to children who are being sold and abused like commodities. And so my friends and I were like, you know, what can we do about it? You know, what 
is there any way that we could be helpful in addressing this? And in, the, in that process, we just started to educate ourselves and learning about the issue. And in that process, we connected with a fairly large organization made up of criminal investigators and lawyers who work specifically to end these kinds of atrocities against people. And in that process, one of the co-found or eventual co-founders of, of Love 146 developed a, a real solid friendship with the director of this organization. And the director of this organization said, hey, look, if you're going to be talking about this publicly, you should really understand it, learn as much as you can about it. And in that process, he invited us to one of their operating centers in a Southeast Asian country to see firsthand the kind of work that was being done. And so we went. And uh, when we got to this particular country, we're in a city and met with their team there. And I re- I'll never forget this, this particular night, they were actually in the middle of an investigation of a brothel where children were being sold and exploited. And their criminal investigators were going in and they invited us to come in with them. And this is not something that we would ever recommend an organization do. And we would never recommend that people would, would do this. But because of the trust and the relationship there, they thought it was safe and they invited us in. And what these guys do is they go in basically undercover. They pose as customers interested in these children. They have undercover surveillance equipment on. They gather evidence. They have to do a separate investigation of local law enforcement to weed out those that might be corrupt or getting paid by traffickers or brothel managers to look the other way. And so there's all this investigative stuff happening. And so they they gave us this, these brief instructions on how to pose as a customer going into this place. And and I have to tell you that it was easily the most disturbing experience of my life to try to pretend to be the very thing that everything in me is completely and utterly repulsed by. And after this little brief you know, in instruction time, we were about to go in and they said, look, if you don't think you can do this, if you don't think you can hold it together with what you're about to see, do not come in. We cannot risk you breaking character and destroying this investigation that has been taking some time to do. And so we were like, no worries until we got in there. And we walked into this place. We found ourselves standing in a room, looking through these glass windows at these girls who were sitting there with matching red dresses on, having even the dignity of a name stripped from them. They had numbers pinned to their dresses. On this side of the glass, I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with predators who are purchasing these kids for sex. And the brothel workers and managers were handing us these like menus, these cards with the numbers of the children on them and their so-called specialty of what they can what they can do and and I remember in that moment the words of this investigator going through my head you know if you don't think you can hold it together because everything in me as a man as a father as a human being was not holding it together very well you know and and I remember the thing that so took my breath away you know in, in that moment was the looks in the eyes of these kids. They were sitting there and they were watching children's cartoons on these television sets behind the glass, waiting to be purchased and and, and abused. And they just had these blank sort of stares staring at these television sets. And trauma can do a lot of horrific things to people. And some at somewhere, the body has this amazing ability to shut down when things get too crazy and too painful. And and what I was observing was just the most heart-wrenching thing I've, I've ever seen. And all these kids had that that sort of stare looking at these television sets, except for one girl. 
and I will never forget her. She was the only one not looking at the children's cartoons. She was staring in our direction through the glass and the look in her eyes, it was, and I don't know because I was just observing, I don't know what was going on inside of her, whether that look was defiance, whether it was fight, whether it was trauma or whatever, but I will never forget that stare and I will never forget her number. Her number was 146. And so, you know, we, we had to leave there that night. The, the investigation was not complete at that point in time, but we left there with a sense of mandate. Like you can't walk away from a situation like that and not engage on some level. And we thought, okay, we've got to do something about this. And then we started to educate ourselves on how we could potentially be helpful. But I think the important piece of this, and I talk to people about this all the time, is that even naming the organization, we actually renamed the organization. We started with another name in the beginning, but in renaming the organization, it reminds us that this isn't just about an issue or a cause. It's about real human beings. And I know this is what you guys are all about, this whole human connection idea. And I think it's such an important thing doing any kind of human rights work, because I think we can sort of dehumanize people by putting them under categories uh, that, that we label them, right? We talk about the homeless, the poor, the refugees, the trafficking. We put the in front of these labels and we forget that there's real human beings that are involved in this. And so uh, in renaming the organization, it was a real good soul searching thing for us to remind us that ab about her and to remind us that this is about somebody's daughter, this is about somebody's son, this is about real human beings. And so, uh, yeah, so we left there that night and we learned as much as we possibly could along the way. We met with other organizations, found out how we could be helpful. I ended up, you know, we, we, we started bringing people into the picture. We started the organization specifically to fill the need of caring for survivors because we saw that as a missing piece, that not a lot was happening in that realm. And then after doing that for some time, we looked at, man, we, if we're going to end this, we need to do something to prevent it. So we began looking at what prevention programs would look like. So that was back in 2002. So since 2002 until this day, we've been able to reach um, a little over 67,000 children on four different continents. And so a lot of, a lot of stuff has happened in, in, in the last 20 years. For sure. Very, very powerful story. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think that's a great takeaway that, that we all can, can learn from, especially like on the other end of that communication, there's a person. On the other end of that support line, there's a person. On the uh, you know, other end of you know, that communication on social or, or that engagement, there's a person there. But you're so right. We can just put the the in front of them and generalize it all and kind of just take their face away, if you will. I mean, it's, it's such a privilege to meet you and to hear your story. And, and I've, I got chills so many times hearing that. I think, you know, the, the problem that we were just talking about that, that the trick of turning people into groups makes it easier to be like politely horrified. And what you did was to make it really personal. And I think people can be moved by the issue to, to then say, what can I do and, and really get out and change the lives of 67,000 children. That's incredible. We have so many questions for you, Rob. I don't want to lose the thread on the name. So Love 146, you t started with a different name. I think that's maybe how you met Spike. But since we just heard that powerful story, tell us a little bit about what was the first name and, and how did we how, tell us about the impact of changing that name? Sure. It's actually a really crazy story in that, you know, when we started looking at naming, you know, once we started the organization, you know, it's, it's sort of like naming a band. You know, I've played in bands for years and it's like, you know, 
you, you think of like, oh, what should we name our band? You know, and, and, you know, it sounds great, you know, and then the next morning you wake up and like, that's the dumbest name ever, you know, and, and when we were looking at naming the organization, you know, we thought about what we want to see happen. And we thought, man, we want to see justice happen for these kids, these kids who have experienced you know, one of the most grossest injustices imaginable. And so we named the organization Justice for Children International, which has a very, you know, it's a, it's a definite non-government organization name. You could see, you, you know, being introduced at the UN for a general set, you know, the, the director of Justice for Children International. It had that sort of power to it. but Weight. Right, it has weight to it. Right. Yes. It has weight. But right away, people just call you by the acronym, right? Which got mixed up all the time. There's JFCI was the acronym, but we were always introduced JCFI, JICF, J, and it was always getting mixed up. Well, long story short, we then got contacted by a group of lawyers actually in Texas who were part of an organization that had a similar name. And they were like, hey, we're getting phone calls, people looking for you. You guys have got to change your name. We've had the name a lot longer. It, we're, it's getting mixed up. You got to change your name. And And being that they were a group of lawyers, we thought this probably isn't a good idea to fight this. And and all of that. And so we really had to like really do like, hey, what do we do about this? And so we contacted, we have a law firm that we contacted. They were like, look, we could, you could fight this and you could probably even potentially win and, and be able to keep the name. But maybe you may want to take this opportunity to think about the name and think about who you are and 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 all of that and take this as an opportunity to potentially you know rebrand I guess and and think about who you are and so um so I'm like I don't even know where to start and so I literally I googled like naming and branding organ you know companies and all of that and there were, and there were some big ones and some great ones that worked with you know organizations that we all know who they are and and all of that and and there was this one name that popped up that struck me this company called brains on fire and i thought well, that's a weird name, but I like it. And I think they might get us. And so I called the number. And interestingly, it was Spike that answered the phone. It's, this is the classic. And it's so appropriate that this is Valentine's Day, right? Because this is a mutual falling in love thing. And, and I, I, call, uh, I call Brains on Fire. And I hear this guy get on the phone, just goes, Brains on Fire, talk to me. And I'm like, that's the weirdest way to answer. And I thought it was a recording. I didn't even know it was a real human being. Brains on Fire, talk to me. And I'm like silent, like waiting for... And then finally, I realized this is a real human being. And I, so I, I spilled my guts to Spike. Long story short, Spike, you know, arranged that we were able to meet with their team at Brains on Fire. We had a sit down session. And I re I'll never forget that, that particular day. They were like, tell us your story. And I told them the story that I just told you. And I mean, people had tears coming down their faces and they were just like, you know, somehow this story is going to be connected to the name. And that's eventually became Love 146. And, and I'll be honest with you, when I first brought the name to our team and brought it to the board, because our board had to, you know, approve something as significant as changing the name of the organization, I was just shot to pieces. It was just like, there's no way that name doesn't make sense. It doesn't say who you are. Just as, you know, I can imagine being at the UN and somebody saying, oh, Right. Will, will the director of Love 146? I mean, it's just, it, it doesn't. And I remember calling the folks at Brains on Fire saying, I'm in big trouble here. The, the board is, doesn't like it. A lot of my team don't like what. And they were like, why? And I said, because the name is such an obscure kind of thing. And I remember I, I, somebody at Brains on Fire, they were like, that will be the genius of the name. It's going to force 
her story to be told, which will be honoring to her, and it'll engage people in a depth that you probably haven't seen before. And they were absolutely right. From the moment we changed the name, it was a little clunky, like a new pair of shoes for the first six months or so as we transitioned to that. But as people began to hear about us and and connect with the name, we saw, I mean, we have people still to this day send us where they've tattooed the name of the organization. Who tattoos the name of a charity? onto their body permanently, you know, and people that, you know, that, that have just gone like way overboard bands and, and people that, you know, wear the number and it forces a story to be told. I can't tell you how many times on airplanes I've had conversations, you know, when I'm flying, you know, on a 15 hour flight someplace overseas, you get into the conversation at some point. So what is it that you do? You know, I, I run a non nonprofit called Love 146. Almost every time, it forces a conversation. There's a quizzical look of like, love what? Love, love 146. What is, what does that mean? What do you do? And then I get to share the story. And sometimes it's the 60 second elevator version. Sometimes it's the longer version. And I've had people actually write checks like in the moment after hearing the story. So it's been a powerful thing in so many ways. And when we talk about movement, you know, and I remember having these kinds of conversations with Spike early on, I would hear this similar language when we would say, man, it would take a movement to end this kind of atrocity. And I would hear similar language from you know, marketing people and, and branding people and people that were using the same kind of language of movement and word of mouth and all of that. And we've seen that become a real powerful thing within the context of what, uh, what we do. Well, uh, thank you for sharing that story. And that is how, you know, you came onto my radar because Spike has told your story and it is, it's an important reminder that a name doesn't have to do everything. It has to sort of be the door opener. It's a really, it's classic spike, provocative and inspiring. From the world of Brains on Fire, we got him over into tech. And so I did, I do want to change gears a little bit. As you know, we talk to all kinds of leaders on our show, but but we, we do try to think about a customer experience, experience and connection through that lens of technology. And as I think about your story and the world that you're in and the world you're trying to change, I mean, technology, it's got to be a real, it's a real double-edged sword. It's, it's a tool for good and a tool for bad, a tool for evil. How does a, how does a global nonprofit like yours think about the role of technology to achieve your mission, but also I'm sure you have mixed feelings. Yeah, I mean, and I think you just nailed it. it is, there is mixed feelings, right? Because I've seen technology used for great good, and I've seen it used for horrific evil. So yeah, it is. A, I love that description. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, for the, the great good part of it, I mean, and we've this has obviously been highlighted for everyone during the pandemic, right? To be able to be connected and being a global organization. I mean, we're we're located in you know s- several different countries as well as several different states throughout the United. United States and to be able to stay connected virtually has been absolutely vital. And, and, and we never saw that coming, right? The need that we would have that tech has been able to create great opportunity. And not just when it comes to like, okay, we're having a lot of Zoom meetings, but, you know, inter office, you know, we, we use Slack a lot and, and being able to communicate that way, which is, has been great internally. So there's been a lot of that happening, connecting our global offices as well as our domestic offices. And then, you know, tech, as far as social media goes, I mean, our, you know, things that have just, you know, 
exploded social media wise has been it's been super helpful to get word out there about the issue to be able to use social media to educate people so that there's deeper understanding to connect with people to say this is how you can be involved and and it just kind of again it's it spreads like crazy the negative side of that is that those that would seek to you know exploit and harm children also are using tech to do so in fact i would say that probably 90% of the kids that we uh, care for both in the states as well as overseas have been exploited online they've been victims of everything from child pornography to you know online exploitation and and it's interesting because i remember years ago meeting with uh, there was a, an officer who headed up the NYPD's anti trafficking unit and i remember him saying way way back he said the new streets it will be the internet. He said, it's just, that's, that's where this is going to start happening. So what used to happen on street corners and in dark alleys and everything, it's all going to be online. And, and that has actually become a reality. So yeah, and, there, and, and tech savvy people that are involved in, in, in doing this. And so you can exploit a child in the Philippines and reach people in the United States or in the UK or, or whatever. It just has brought everything so much closer. And then you have, especially during something like a pandemic, when you have so many people at home, that people that would typically see some of the warning signs of a child that potentially is being groomed or trafficked online, they're not, they're not having that ability to be face-to-face and see those sort of uh, warning signs. So even being yeah, with the pandemic being in inside and in a, in a house and kids nowadays pour their hearts out online. And that's what traffickers look for. Those that would exploit vulnerabilities, they look for vulnerability and kids are saying, oh man, I just had a fight with my parents or I'm thinking of running away. And there's these people that are out there that are hunting for kids like that and looking for vulnerability. And so, yeah, so it is definitely a two, two-edged sword, like you said. Frightening indeed. I want to go back to something or two things you said earlier. So you know, same language I, I, and then also tattoos. So I, there is something that you taught me that I, to this day as a marketer, I carry with me and I think about a lot. Because when I first met you, you had a big tattoo on your forearm of a word. And then I asked a little bit about it and you explained why you have that. And now even as a marketer, when I try to create community and create connections, I always think about that tattoo and and the lesson you taught me. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's, it's, this is, I don't know if you can see that. It's my, my tribe tattoo, I think is what you're talking about. So these are, these are my kids. These, these are all the, the, I have seven kids. And so the tattoo has gotten bigger as we've uh, increased our tribe, but basic bottom line, this is who I belong to, right? This is, this is my family. This is my tribe. This is who, who I belong to, you, you know, and, and so when, when I think about the bigger picture of that, we often just like what happened with, with you and I, Spike, it was like this, like aha moment of meeting somebody who speaks a similar language. And there's this connection there of like, wow, you're thinking a lot of the same things that I'm thinking and stuff. There's a, there's a connection that is made. And so we, I remember the, when we left our first time with with you and, and your team there, I remember sitting in the car with one of the co-founders of Love One Forty Six, and I just looked. I looked at her and I said, "Same tribe." 
same tribe and and it was there was that sort of there was like a heart connection that that went deeper than your typical acquaintance or business trans- transaction or whatever and we see the same thing happen with those that have become part of the love 146 story donors you know people that you know in the marketing world you consider customers or, or whatever but people that have come in and hey i want in i want to be a part of this thing you know oftentimes we'll you know we'll meet some of these folks and it's just like oh i get it i get why they've connected with us. There's just this sense of hope. That's some of the values that we carry as an organization. We see some of those same values oftentimes in the people who connect with us to engage at at whatever level that looks like for them. So yeah. That is very powerful. And I think the concept of tribe, you know, it doesn't, it's not about, it's about affinity. It's about a shared set of you hope values and aspirations and that is not very common sort of NGO, UN speak all the time, back to the way that you think about the world and think about it a little differently. And so we always ask on this show, Rob, what is a commonly held belief in your industry that you passionately disagree with? Oh, man, that's and this is such a good question. I think it would be that more is better. I disagree with that. And what I mean by that is awareness. You know, I think one of my colleagues and good friend, Marilyn, she calls, she talks about the attention economy, right? And, and, uh, especially in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of attention on child trafficking, right? There was a hashtag that went viral. And, and unfortunately, a lot of that is also connected into conspiracy theories. And so there's been a lot of misinformation out there. And, and so I, we, we've been debunking a lot of that misinformation and trying to take down some of these, like, Hey, that, that is a conspiracy theory. That's not a reality. That's not something that's actually happening. This is what it actually, and trying to do that. We've been spending too much time doing that. And, and some, you know, we get asked, you know, well, don't you think that's actually a good thing that there's more people now that are aware of it? Well, no, it's not necessarily a good thing because if it's based on misinformation, then people are going to be looking in places for trafficking that maybe it's actually not happening or they're, they're going to miss it when it actually is, that it may look a lot more normal than the you know, the, the shady character or the secret cabal that lives under the White House or the pizza joint or whatever and everything. And so we'll miss it when it's the gym teacher in your kid's school that might be doing this and, or, or the youth pastor at a church or, or whoever it might be in our own neighborhoods. And so, so yeah, but I think there's that, there's a, this commonly held belief that all awareness is good. And I don't think that that's necessarily a true thing. And, and I think also another thing is that it's a black and white issue. The reality is human trafficking is really complex. And it is the proverbial rabbit hole that the, the further in you go, the darker and more complex it seems to get. So there, there's actually a lot, of, a lot of commonly held beliefs that, I mean, a, a personal one, there oftentimes people mistake me for an optimist. You know, they'll hear me speak someplace or whatever. And they're like, oh, you're the most optimistic person ever. And I'm like, you don't know me at all. I'm definitely not an optimist. I've seen way too much to be an optimist. I'm not anti-optimist. I, I like being around optimists. It's not. Nice, but I'm I'm not an optimist, and I think I, I, I think optimists have a tendency to move a little bit into denial, where like things are bad, but everything's going to be okay. It's all going to work out, and I just don't think that that's necessarily 
reality. What I am, and this is what I think where people mistake it for, I am defiantly hopeful. One of our core values as an organization is, is what we call defiant hope. Defiance, unfortunately, as a word, has usually negative connotations, right? I, I used to say all the time that, man, if I had a dollar for every time that I heard the word defiant applied to me when I was growing up by either school teachers or my parents or whatever, I'd be able to fund our work forever, man. But man, as I've taken that defiance and I've attached it to hope, it's become a very active thing, right? It's, it's paying off in spades in that defiant hope to me is different than optimism that it recognizes the harshness of the reality of what we're dealing with, but it, ins- it insists that it can change and potentially change by my action. There's act- it's, it's action rather than, it's active rather than passive is what I'm trying to say. So yeah, there's a lot of things that are commonly <laughs> held beliefs, I think, that maybe I disagree with at times. Or recovery isn't possible. It used to be my belief. When I, when I first got into this, I thought, is recovery even possible for kids that have experienced this kind of trauma? day in and day out, multiple times a day. How is recovery even possible? I can tell you after 20 years of doing this work, recovery is absolutely possible. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. I've seen children who you'd think wouldn't have a reason to even smile against. I, I dance. I've seen these these kids go on and have amazing lives. And so a commonly held belief is that, oh, I don't know if that's even possible. Well, it absolutely is. So yeah, I have lots of, lots of things like that. Ooh. Wow. There's so much agency in that, right? Like optimism. You could, I, I think that's a really cool insight. Defiantly hopeful. Yeah. And you, we learn that from the kids that we work with. I mean, for, for some of our kids, when they wake up in the morning and choose to live another day, that is an act of defiant hope. How could we not do the same thing? I mean, it's just, it's a no brainer. So another question that we ask all of our guests, this is CX Confessions. So it is confession time. What is a hard lesson that you have learned along the way with Love 146? Oh, man. That, wow, that's a great question. I think a hard lesson is that it takes too long to see justice happen. And this may be sort of an, an American thing. I, I think we like to see things fixed quick. Part of that is selfish, right? Part of it is like, I like the satisfaction of knowing that my action somehow has accomplished something. And so, because th- this is work that takes a long time, I think that's, it's just hard to live with that. You know, I, I, I remember back, I think it was in 2003, I was talking to director of a large human rights agency and she looked at me and she goes, you know what your problem is as Americans? This was in Cambodia. She goes, you know what your problem is as Americans? And I sort of braced myself thinking, okay, I can think of some things, but I know you're going to tell me, go for it. What's, a, what's our problem? And she looked at me, she goes, you don't think, instead you react. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting observation. And she started to unpack that a little bit. And, and she says, I think you see some human rights abuse happening in the world or, or whatever, and maybe even had a good motivation. It's not good motivation all the time, but maybe if it is good motivation, you don't necessarily take the time to think through solutions that are going to be effective and sustainable. Instead, you just react. And because you haven't put thought into your reaction, oftentimes your reaction causes more harm than good. And I will never forget that because I felt like somebody laid a house of responsibility on my shoulder of like, we've got to be thoughtful so that our, so that what we do is effective and is actually going to work. And, and so the tension there, the heart of the hard lesson is learning to live with this tension of the, the time that it takes to create thoughtful and sustainable solutions that are effective versus the emergency factor that while we're taking the time to think through these things, 
children are being hurt, children are being exploited. And so living with that tension has been a really, really hard, a hard thing. I am um, picturing the sort of the law and order episodes, right? Like it, it were the Americans were used to the, a problem. You identify, it goes to the justice. We're all done. It's all tied up, and people go to jail within an hour. Like you know, all we have to do is see it, and then we fix it, and then it's resolved. And that's a really important, really important insight that these are long. There's a long tail of resolution, but you have to carry the hope with you. Yeah, everybody wants a Liam Neeson character to show up, right? So I've got, I've got skills and, and the, that's not, that's not real life. That's not actually what it, what it looks like in, in real life, but we love that storyline. We love that narrative, but it's way more complex and harder than that for sure. Wow. My heart is very full. We could talk for another half an hour, probably two more hours. We're getting to the end of our conversation. But as you said at the uh, earlier, Rob, it's actually, we're having this conversation on Valentine's Day. And that's always, I've always had a little bit of mixed feelings on the holiday, Hallmarky, whatever. But I, uh, it feels very appropriate to be having such a powerful conversation about love and about meaning and about taking care of our fellow humans around the world and super inspiring, super grateful to know you and to be able to share your story with our group. We'd love to lo know a little bit more about you, Rob. You know, uh, we, we just heard about you, seven children, incredible in your, in your immediate tribe. We always end our show with five questions to get to know our guests a little bit better on a personal level. Very excited to hear your answers to these. Number one, what was your first concert? Elvis. What? What? 1972, Madison Square Garden with my mom. I was 10 years old. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll never forget word. it. Best mom ever. Yeah, and and the thing that the thing that I remember more than anything about that concert was being so freaked out by my mom because I saw a side of my mom I never ever saw before as a ten year old. My mom was screaming her head off and stopping crying and everything. I was like, "You're not my mother!" <laughs> it's absolutely, absolutely amazing. But that was yeah, that was my first concert ever. It was Elvis Presley, nineteen seventy two, at Madison Square Garden. Never forget it. That's impressive. Wow. How about your first job? First job, I was cutting lawns, and that was not really a job job. I think that my first actual official job working for somebody other than myself was I worked at a flower shop as a delivery boy, and I only worked for one day because I got fired after I dropped off a couple of deliveries and had a ton, of, ton more time left. And so I took the, the flower van and went and hung out with my friends for the rest of the day, and apparently I wasn't supposed to do that, so I lost that job in a day. But that was my first job. <laughs> Good times. Good times. <laughs> uh, Rob, if you weren't CEO and co-founder of Love 146, what profession would you attempt if you could? I would be a teacher. I would love to be a teacher. Probably wow, history teacher. Subject? I can see that. Yeah. History teacher. Yeah. Very cool. Totally see that. What is your current favorite app on your phone? Oh, this is so not like creative or <laughs> different. I mean, this is, I would say that it's probably, it's, it's, my, it's my favorite and my least favorite all at the same time, depending on what sort of mood I'm in, but probably TweetBot. I mean, just, you know, I get all my news on, on you know, scrolling in the morning on Twitter, seeing what's going on in the world. And then at the same time, I hate it because sometimes I feel like it's just too much information, but it's, uh, yeah, it's probably my, my go-to. 
Well, it sounds like it could be a little bit of a vice too, but our final question is, what is your biggest indulgence? Such a great question. I actually have to really think about this one. I I think probably, well, it's Valentine's Day. So I'm going to say watching romantic comedies with my wife. I love romantic comedies, watching them with my wife. And then I also love taking my kids to to, sh- to concerts. So like, I've sort of had this thing with each of my kids that I get to take them to their first concert ever. And so, yeah. So yeah, I've had, I've seen a lot of interesting because <laughs> it has to be their choice. So I've seen, I've seen Hanson like four times, uh, you know, I've saw One Direction in their heyday. And so it's, yeah, some of this, sometimes I'm just like, what am I doing? But it's always, I always try to do the, like get as close to the front as possibly can and yeah, immerse ourselves in the whole thing. There you go. That's Keeps so you young. Great. Keeps yeah. you young. And, and before Catherine closes out, where can we find you, Rob? Love146.org. Where else? Love146.org is, and that's, you know, our website. You can see the same thing. Love146 on all the social media platforms. My, my social media, my personal social media is Rob Love146 on Instagram and Twitter as well. Fantastic. And of course, I, I have to say, if you if you go to the website, please donate uh, what you can, get involved. It's a very, very powerful organization full of amazing people. Love 146 is also a part of our own Coros Social Responsibility Program, so we're very proud of that as well. We love that partnership right now. Yes. Thank you. It's a privilege to know you, Rob, and to get to be a tiny, tiny part of the Love 146 story. For our listeners, I just want you, you heard us say today was Valentine's Day when we're having this conversation. Don't let it be just a day. Spread the love. Go and find out more. Learn how you can get involved. We're proud to be partners, and we hope you will consider doing that too. Thank you for tuning into another episode of CX Confessions. We will see you again very soon for another great convo. In the meantime, like and subscribe. Your customers expect to be understood. Their likes and dislikes, their history with your brand, and their communication preferences. But so many companies struggle to connect the dots of interaction across their own teams and channels, and it's creating customer experience challenges and disasters. That's where Koros can help. Koros is the award-winning customer engagement platform built to turn those siloed interactions with your customer into enterprise value. Koros works with more than 2,000 of the world's leading brands and powers more than 500 million digital interactions every day. Koros is the award-winning platform for digital-first customer engagement. Ready to create human connection across the digital customer experience to create customers for life? Learn more at Koros.com. Thanks for listening to CX Confessions, brought to you by Koros. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player and give us a rating. See you next time.